Good morning, everyone. It is great to be with you today. I hope that you are getting a chance at this wonderful time of the year to enjoy either something that is pumpkin flavored uh, or maybe getting to check out some of the leaves that are starting to change color. Uh, but whatever it might be, I hope that you're enjoying this time of the year. And as you remember, we've been together studying what it means to live into God's wisdom. And we're going to continue in that here today. And so as we get ready to dive into God's word, would you join with me in a word of prayer? Almighty God, this day, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, shaking us to new life in you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Maybe some of you have heard this particular fable. Uh, it goes like this. A family of mice had been living in fear because of a cat. One day, they all came together to discuss possible ideas to defeat the cat. After much discussion, one young mouse got up to suggest an idea. He suggested that they put a bell around the cat's neck so they could hear it when it approached and thus have ample time to run away. All the other mice agreed, apart from one older, wise mouse. And that older, wise mouse agreed with them in theory. But then the mouse asked, and who will put the bell on the cat? To which there was complete silence. Yes, it is absolutely one thing to know about an idea in theory, but then applying those ideas that were in theory and putting them into practice. Well, that is quite another thing. As you know by now, throughout this entire sermon series on wisdom, we've been exploring what does it mean to apply godly wisdom in our lives. And we're doing that because there are so many voices that are coming at us from so many different angles. It can be difficult to decide what's the next right or best step to take. And it's godly wisdom that helps us to know what the next best step to take may be. And while information and knowledge are good things, they do not help us a whole lot unless we learn to put those things, the knowledge and the teaching, into practice. If we can't apply the knowledge in real ways to the circumstances of our lives, it's going to be very difficult to actually take steps forward in any positive or concrete way. So throughout this entire sermon series, we've been using this as our definition for wisdom, that wisdom is the ongoing application of God's truth and knowledge to our circumstances. And one of the beautiful things about godly wisdom is that it applies in all areas of our lives. And hopefully we've already been seeing that in this series together. We've been understanding how wisdom helps us to know God. We've been understanding how godly wisdom helps us to experience healing in broken family relationships. We've explored how wisdom helps us in the healing of anger in our lives with others. And now today we're coming to explore something that I think relates to all of us in one way or another, and that is to explore the destructive power of pride and how we can learn to live into humility through godly wisdom. One of the things that can be frustrating about wisdom is that when we read through the Proverbs, you will remember Proverbs are written that they are short little snippets, one right after another. And so they offer us very quick techniques without a lot of explanation. So we hear things like, don't gossip, or work hard like the ant, or don't deride your neighbor. 
or one of the ones that we've enjoyed laughing about, holding your tongue lest you be a husband or wife who drives your spouse to the corner of the roof, like a leaky roof that is you know, leaking among you. Those elements are things we can hear, but there's not a lot of description in how to apply them. And therefore, when we read Proverbs, they happen so very quickly. But the thing about wisdom is that wisdom comes with time as we practice the godly techniques that God gives us. You'll remember how a couple of weeks ago we talked about this idea of quick fix. We like the quick technique. We want that image of the doorway that we walk through, and as soon as we take one step through, we have a magically arrived in a brand new place. We do not like to take the long pathway that requires patience and repetition and working on something over and over and over again. Time and patience and practice do not come easily to us human beings. And maybe that's why we struggle with wisdom in general. And perhaps that's why there's no more challenging issue that we face than the issue of humility. Maybe this is one of the reasons why there are so many proverbs that talk about or address this issue of humility. This whole concept of if you think you are wise, then you're actually a fool is something that comes up a lot in the book of Proverbs as a whole. So in Proverbs 11.2, we hear when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. In Proverbs 15.33, we hear this, wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord and humility comes before honor. In Proverbs 16, verses 18 and 19, we hear this, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall, better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. For as frequently as it's mentioned in Proverbs and really in the Bible as a whole, it's clear humility is something we all need to pay attention to. As Tim Keller points out, there's at least three things that Proverbs shares with us about pride. Proverbs shares with us what pride is, what pride does, and what the antidote to pride is. So I wanna ask us to look at those things together. First of all, what pride is. Pride is the need to feel better than others in some way. Look again, Proverbs chapter 11, Verse 12, whoever derides their neighbor has no sense, but the one who has understanding holds their tongue. The great author and writer C.S. Lewis in his wonderful book, Mere Christianity, once described pride this way. He said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man or person. It is the comparison that makes you proud the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. Did you hear when we shared earlier in scripture what, what was said about the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, verse 11? Listen again to what is described. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. It's the comparison that drives the pride for the Pharisee. It's the moreness for the Pharisee that lets him feel somehow superior to the tax collector. Think back for a moment in the Garden of Eden all the way at the beginning of Scripture. What was it that the serpent tempted Adam and Eve with? 
Because remember, Adam and Eve had everything. I mean, everything that they could ever want was right there in the garden. It was their own version of paradise. There, there was really nothing more they could think of that would make it a better place, except when they compared their paradise and their everything to the greatness of God, they realized that their paradise and their greatness was still lesser than God's. They had paradise, they had it all, but it wasn't enough when they compared it to the greatness of God. And because of that, they traded it all away because it no longer seemed like enough. Notice that the heart and center of pride then is us, our wants, our desires, our need to have our egos stroked in some way. So many of us seek to justify ourselves by making ourselves better than them, whoever them may be. So a team, particularly in sports, is viewed as successful when it has more points by comparison than another team. Even if that team wins through corruption or cheating, they're often the ones deemed better because they scored more points. Or a business is viewed as more successful when its revenues are higher than other businesses and in a similar field what their revenue may be, even if some of those other businesses have chose to invest more in their employees' salaries or pouring more back into the local community. And we certainly see this in politics at every level on all sides. Increasingly, it's not about the platform that you advocate for. It's about putting down your opponent enough that you are the one that somehow appears to be superior or better in some way. So the focus isn't on the content or the platform or even moving forward. The focus is on putting another one down so that you somehow look better. We see this in so many ways. Not too long ago, maybe some of you saw that the US News and World Report put out its annual list of best colleges. And the basic idea there is the higher you are on the list, the better you are and the better you can feel about yourself. Now to be really careful, I am in no way suggesting that we not pay attention to some of that data, that we not pay attention to some of those metrics, I would even encourage us that we must evaluate ourselves. We have to offer careful analysis. We should not put our heads in the sand, especially in the face of problems or challenges or decline. But what I am saying is that if our worth or the entirety of our worth comes based primarily on how we compare to others, we then have a pride problem. If I'm only okay when I'm better than someone else, we have a pride problem. As I've been thinking about this, I would say it this way. When it comes to pride, we have an er problem, as in E-R, an er problem. What do I mean by that? For so many of us to find the value in ourselves, to justify ourselves, we create an er reality. Somehow we have to feel that we are cooler than someone else or better than somebody else, or that we work harder than somebody else, or that we're smarter than somebody else, or that we're richer or faster than somebody else. Notice it's all based on the comparison. If I can somehow just be better than them, then now I'm okay. And so this becomes our way of earning our own self-worth. 
which leads to an endless pursuit of trying to justify ourselves by somehow elevating ourselves above others. And so we are attacked all the time by demons of panic and fear. And so we fake our way along and puff our way along and put on airs all that so somehow we seem better than others. We're given this description in Proverbs 13.10, again related to pride, when it says this, Where there is strife, there is pride, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Now, this proverb hits me rather personally, and here's why. For every sermon that I have the privilege of sharing in and preaching, I have others who read a draft of the sermon first, or at least a rough draft of it. And I do this because they often see things that I don't or I cannot. They hear things in ways I was not expecting. In other words, I know the sermon will be better if I take advice beyond just my own understanding and beyond just my own eyes and ears. Now, true confession here, I know this in my head. I know that it's good and wise to take advice from others beyond myself, but I'll confess to you, I don't always feel it here. Because sometimes I get feedback on the sermon and I will say, this sermon is great or this sermon is incredible. I don't have much feedback or much change. And I, of course, say, well, I'm good with that. Thank you so much for reading it, looking at it, considering it. Sometimes, though, I will get feedback that says, well, I just want to suggest that you think about X, Y, or Z, or you might want to change that. And that I'm usually good with, not always, but most of the time. But occasionally when they come back and say, you know, Matt, you, you've really missed the mark here. Or they point out something that I thought was really good and they're like, that's really not good. Well, then what I really want to say in my heart of hearts is something along the lines of how dare you mess with these holy words straight from God that came from my mind. Don't tell me how to preach this sermon. Now, I realize, you know, that may not be the most helpful response. But when that happens in my mind, I realize that it's no longer, the issue is no longer feedback about the sermon. The issue is now about Matt and his pride problem. If I disagree with the feedback, fine, no problem. But if I just don't like it and I get upset or I take it as a reflection of Matt the person, somehow not living up to who I should be or finding my value and my worth only in positive affirmation, well, then I know I have a pride problem. And I'm sure all of us can identify with that kind of thing at one level or another in our lives. Because with pride, it's the ego that's always calling attention to itself. We can't get through the day or through an hour or through a few minutes without feeling snubbed or ignored or having our feelings hurt or feeling put down in some way because the focus is always on us. Now, lots of times when we think about pride, we think about being puffed up. We think about feeling superior to like that Pharisee in the story that we heard today. But we have to also understand this about pride. It can also cause us to feel snuffed out deflated, defeated. Pride can cause us to feel puffed up or it can also cause us to feel deflated. Why? Because pride is all about a focus on ourselves and comparing ourselves to others. And that's always gonna lead to us either feeling superior to others or inferior to others. 
So I'm gonna say something here that just honestly might be pretty hard for some of us to hear. And so I wanna say this carefully but accurately. In some ways then, pride can manifest itself just as much in low self-esteem as it can in an overly high self-esteem. Now we don't often think about it this way, but remember, low self-esteem is still about thinking about ourselves all the time. We are just as self-absorbed as those who have a superiority complex, just from the opposite end of the spectrum. We are still morbidly self-conscious. So in that way, we start to see what pride is. It's this need to feel better than others, and it's either going to lead to us feeling superior or, again, inferior. But either way, it's the comparison that drives us. So because of that, that's, we, we can then understand what pride does. What does it do? Pride destroys. And the Proverbs are so clear on this. We hear in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, notice it does not say it might lead to destruction. It says there's a parade going and pride is coming right after it for absolute sure. Why is pride so utterly destructive? Well, on the one hand, there's a practical element of destruction when it comes to pride. We hear this in Proverbs 13, 10, where there is strife, there is pride but wisdom is found in those who take advice. So as we just noted, the proud person does not receive advice very well. They do not learn from their mistakes very well. So if you wanna know somebody who struggles with pride, just take note around you of who is able to accept constructive criticism and feedback, who around you is able to learn from their mistakes, or more accurately, when it comes to pride, who is not able to learn from their mistakes. Because those who cannot receive advice, those who cannot learn from their mistakes, that is like a flashing neon sign that there's a pride issue going on there. Because pride distorts, it colors our view of everything. And when we struggle with pride, we start to dismiss things. We, we blame others, we make excuses. And because of that, pride distorts our reality in such a way that we then never improve. It keeps us out of touch with reality, and that is always destructive, and eventually it leads to some form of ruin. So what we see then is that pride is destructive at a very practical level, but there are also cosmic reasons why pride leads to destruction, and I find this absolutely fascinating. Look with me in Proverbs 15, 15. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but he sets the widow's boundary stones in place. And then Proverbs 16, 19, better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. So we see this type of theme a lot in the Bible. God loves the widow, the weak, the poor, the outsider. God loves the losers those who do not get positions of power in this world. Why is this the case? And again, I love this, so track with me on this. The totality of scripture reveals that God is and exists as Trinity. We've talked about this before. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They've lived in coexistence for all of eternity. It's one of those things that we can partly explain and not explain, which to me makes it so God. 
But what was God doing for all of eternity as the three? For all of that time, what was God doing? I think we get a hint in John 17, and we hear Jesus praying this for his disciples. He says, according to the message version, Father, I want those you gave me to be with me right where I am so they can see my glory. Then he says, the splendor you gave me, Father, having loved me long before there was ever a world. What is the essence then of what God's been doing for all of eternity? God giving splendor to Jesus. God the Father giving splendor to Jesus and to the Holy Spirit, which then means Jesus also would have been giving splendor to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would have been giving splendor to God the Father and Jesus the Son. It's this state of continual, perpetual, mutual submission and humility out of reverence for each other over and over and over and over for all of eternity. There's a powerful Greek word for this called perichoresis. It's where we actually get our word choreography from. And what it basically means is that each person, each one of the three delights in the other and moves in such a way as to bring delight for the other. It is a mutual dance of love, this continual indwelling and pouring into of giving, 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 giving that is part of the very fabric and nature of God. So what we see is that each person of the Trinity actually is centered on the other persons of the Trinity. The essence is focusing on them, not on self. So notice, in God, there's always an other orientation, not a me orientation. What's the nature of pride? A me orientation. This means pride is against the very fabric of who God is because God has an other orientation. Thus, the very fabric of the universe, of creation, of existence itself is other-based. So, if we are in the business of pulling for ourselves, instead of giving it away, we are on a collision course with the fabric of God, God's self, because God loves in a humble, powerful, mutually submissive way. To me, that's a staggering, powerful thought. So that humility draws us into God because that's who God is. God has spent eternity fostering humility. But when we engage pride, it pushes us away from God. It destroys because it tears at the very fabric of the reality of God. So do you hear what's happening literally? There is a tearing, a ripping apart that leads to destruction. When we pursue pride, it's against the very nature of who God is. And that's why destruction happens. It's against the very essence of what God desires for us and God's creation. So if our glory is to get glory, if our goal in pride is to lift up ourselves, it's actually going to lead to destruction because that's the antithesis of who God is. And we've seen this over and over and over. We saw it with Adam and Eve. When they pulled for themselves, they pushed God away and there was destruction and paradise was lost. So pride is a really, really big deal because it's the need to feel better than others by comparing ourselves. And we realize then that in that need of comparison, there's a destruction that happens. 
So what's the answer? What's the antidote to the destruction of pride? Proverbs 15.33. Wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord, and humility comes before honor. And then Proverbs 11.2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. As we have talked about now for many weeks, it's the fear of the Lord in which we find the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 15.33 tells us that. It's the glory or honor that comes through humility. It's one of the reasons I love our, one of our core markers here at First Church. We talk about humble power because we recognize that any greatness that comes, it's a result of God, not us. We don't want our glory. We want God's glory. We want God's power. And the only way that occurs is in humility because it's in humility that we join in lockstep with the very nature, the very fabric of who God is. And God has demonstrated this so many times and in so many ways. Just think, God was born in a manger. He wasn't born at Madison Square Garden. He was born in an unimportant colony in the Roman Empire. This is the real God who does things in a different way from the rest of the world. So if we want to find God, most often we're not going to be looking in empires or palaces or places of significance. Many of us are aware just in the last couple of weeks on the passing of Queen Elizabeth and what an amazing woman she was. And we give thanks for her faith. But it was interesting when she passed away, literally the world stopped because we love royalty. We look for royalty. We want to know what they're doing. And so both religious and non-religious, when Queen Elizabeth passed away, everyone stopped for this amazing uh, procession around her and around royalty and all that came with it. That's not where this God we serve comes from. I compare that, that funeral procession and the service for Queen Elizabeth as beautiful and extravagant as it was with a friend of mine whom I will not name, who quite honestly is struggling in life and struggling just to keep up and struggling to find any value for his life. And he's quiet and he's unassuming and I'm not sure hardly anyone knows his name. It's there though that we so often find God. And one of the reasons I enjoy spending time with him is because when I'm with him, I just sense the presence of God there. If you want to find God, we must look in the low places. Why is it, even though they're hard, we can enjoy mission trips? Why is it that when we gather together for Transform and for Code Blue, even though it requires our time and energy and effort, why do we do that in part? Why do we serve? Why do we pour ourselves out? Because it's a chance to connect with God in the non-powerful places. Remember when Jesus came, he was betrayed by the powerful, not the non-powerful, not the humble. Think about this. Imagine if your goal right now was to say that 2,000 years from right now, your goal was to be the most famous person who ever lived, to have a third of the world follow you and worship you, to have whole civilizations follow you. If that was your goal, how would you go about it? Would you choose to stay hidden for over 30 years? Would you avoid the political structures of the day? Would you choose to be killed tragically when even half of your life was not yet over? 
Would you choose to never write a book or never appear on TV? We would never choose to be famous in those ways. And yet that's exactly how Jesus chose to go about it. Jesus did those things. He didn't write the book. He was killed at an early age. He did live in seclusion for 30 years, and it worked. If Jesus had only come in strength and only lived in power and strength, well, then only the strong could follow. But that would have excluded so many. Where is Jesus most being welcomed in the world or many parts of the world right now? Among the poor and broken and oppressed, because they can relate. Why? Because Jesus brings a salvation built on humility, not our own doing, not us in our own strength. Jesus did not say, I'm strong, so suck it up and live like me. He died a death we should have died. He took on our punishment. He became broken and destitute for us so that the glory was achieved through humility. He came and served. He did not come and grab. So anytime you see a leader grabbing, watch out. Anytime you see a pastor grabbing, watch out. Anytime you see a boss grabbing, watch out. Because by grabbing, I mean somebody who wants more for themselves than everyone else. Someone who's choosing er, more, better for them than others around them. So when we seek to follow God, we seek a humility in wisdom that is going to allow us to not be a people who grab, but a people who give and serve and pour ourselves out just like Jesus and God the Father and God the Son, so that we also might live into the very fabric, the very reality, the very existence of God, so that we do not walk down paths of destruction, but we enter into paths of healing and life for ourselves, for the world, for all of creation. I've shared with some of you that years ago when I was in college, I actually had the opportunity to visit in Israel where Jesus himself was born. And there's a church there called the Church of the Nativity. To get to the actual place where Jesus was born, you have to do two things. One, you first have to descend down to a certain level, literally lower yourself down. And then when you get to the actual spot of the birth, you actually have to get down on all fours on your hands and knees to look into the space and place where Christ himself was born. In other words, to get closest to the birth of new life in Jesus, you must first humble yourself. Only then will you experience the greatness of God. Now, this can be hard to remember, I realize. It can be hard even just as we gather in these moments for worship. But it's going to be especially hard when we get back into the real world, back to work and life and school. So here's what I invite you to do this week. The next time that you pray, maybe before one of your meals, and I hope you are praying before each meal, it's a small thank you to God. I want to invite you when you do that the next time, take special note to bow your head and to feel the bowing. In fact, I invite you just even to do that right now. Just literally bow your head and feel the bowing and let that posture anchor you in humility, in the fear of the Lord to recognize that we who are broken desire to experience the wisdom of God who washes away our pride and fills us with his life-giving humility.
with heads bowed even in these moments. Would you pray with me? Lord God, help us to model your love and humility to the world that we might be a people stuck not in our own pride. Instead, help us to offer healing in humility rather than destruction. Give us the wisdom and the faith to love you more than we love ourselves.